0: Welcome back to the Therapy for Real Life podcast. This is not therapy, this is real life. I'm your host, Anna lindbergh Cedar, and I couldn't think of a better guest for our show than Randy Wolbert, who joins the Therapy for Real Life podcast today to discuss where behavior therapy and mindful spiritual practices align. In a moment, I'll ask Randy to share more about his Journey to Zen, which overlaps with a long career in providing dialectical behavior therapy, clinical supervision, and DBT trainings around the world. Plus, Randy is a Zen teacher trained by Marsha Linehan, among other experts. I hope you enjoy today's show. And I have, uh had personal benefit from your experience going to Zen Sashin's for silent retreats and continuing my practice of mindfulness um, in addition to DBT. So thank you very much for joining me on the show today. Would you share with our audience a little bit more about your path to Zen?
1: Sure, absolutely. Um, I actually even start with uh, my Uh, doing DBT. Um, Back in the uh, early 90s, like 93, 94, uh, I was the clinical director of an organization in Michigan uh, that provided uh, assertive community treatment services and outpatient services to individuals from a community mental health level um, And one of the difficult things that we had was figuring out how to treat persons with borderline personality disorder. And uh, because we were assertive community treatment, we tended to get the most severe, um, most difficult cases, uh, people that had long histories of institutionalization. And we had absolutely no idea what we were doing. And so we explored some various other techniques of uh, trying to figure out how to provide treatment because we, we wanted to do right by people and uh, came across Marshall Linehan's book that had just been published uh, called Cognitive Behavior Therapy for Borderline Personality Disorder. And uh, I actually ended up reading that thinking, you know, this, is, uh, this might work. It's, it's very similar to the group of people that we work with. And uh, so we got a little bit of training. We started uh, trying to implement the program. And then in 95, we were fortunate enough to uh, come by a little bit of grant money that we were able to send a team out to Seattle to get trained uh, by her and how to provide the treatment. And uh, so had at the organization I worked at, they still continue to do DVT. Uh, I became a trainer for uh, Behavior Tech, which is Marsha's uh, training company uh, in 98, and was doing that very part-time and full-time clinical director yet. And then about uh, five and a half years ago, uh, decided to leave uh, my organization in Michigan and, uh, become a full-time trainer consultant with behavior tech. So I've been doing that ever since a lot of, a lot of training and prior to COVID, a lot of time on the road. And, uh, I actually miss being on the road now, mm-hmm. as far as Zen, um, I've been interested in mindfulness for a long time. And, uh, that was one of the things that got me truly excited about dbt is that it had this uh component of mindfulness in it uh but i didn't know anything about zen other than zen and the art of motorcycle maintenance Mm -hmm. and uh actually had read uh john cabot zinn's book full catastrophe living Mm -hmm. and uh ordered his uh back then they were cassette tapes yet of uh, some meditation exercises and uh, was trying to do those every day. And I'd do fine for about a week or 10 days straight. And then I'd take a day or two off and then it'd be a month and then I'd get back to it again. Um, And I liked the practice that he was suggesting. Um, However, I, I kind of missed a little bit of the more spiritual connection
0: is the practice you're referring to, is that the body scan? Is that
1: the- well, there's the body scan, and then there's also sitting meditation, which is mm-hmm. really, uh, much more of the guided nature. Mm. And um, it's called Vipassana meditation. And uh, so I went to one-day retreats, actually really did like that a lot. Um, again, I was uh, missing more of the the spiritual path and I didn't even know I was missing it I knew I was missing something
0: did and, you have words words for that at that time besides spiritual path was there you no. know this this is a burnout prevention uh podcast so some people oh, are, okay. you know listening and yeah. might be calling it burnout but I'm wondering at that time in your life how did you
1: know no, it move? was uh, it was like feeling like something was missing yeah it uh I I enjoyed um sitting, uh, although 45 minutes at a stretch seemed awfully long. And uh, just felt like I was getting uh, sort of the psychological and probably some of the physiological benefits from sitting. Uh, But it just felt like there was something missing. Mm -hmm. And um, so I did a little bit of reading. But one of the things that Marshall Linehan um, did was she was running these retreats um and she had started them a year or two earlier than I got in on my first one and we would go to these trainers meetings as uh BTEC trainers and uh she would always invite everybody and uh so I finally uh decided okay I'm gonna go and uh the person that uh, really convinced me to go was uh, Gwen, who was the person that I did um, DBT with at the, at the agency. She was the DBT services supervisor. And fortunately, uh, she didn't tell me what I was in for because um, I was expecting it to be oh yeah, we'd sit for a while and then Marsha would deliver this wonderful training and then we'd sit for a little while and then she'd deliver more training. I was ill-prepared for all those hours of sitting.
0: You were thinking about the fun parts of grad school or something like that. Like, uh, you know,
1: um, and, and hanging out in the desert because it was in Tucson. Uh huh. Um, and actually... Uh, the first time I'm sitting there uh, so she explains how to sit and uh, so I'm sitting there and uh, in Zen there's the tradition of sitting facing the wall and I'm thinking what's with this Um, and it's eyes open and Vipassana is always with your eyes closed and I'm trying to figure out what's with that And, uh, I actually started feeling like I was going to have a panic attack when I first started sitting and I thought, Oh my God, what am I going to do? And, uh, then I remember it's like, okay, so what's the best treatment for when panic arises? (laughs) Oh, breathing. That's what I'm supposed to do anyway. And, uh, So I got through that retreat and uh, about halfway through or something, it shifted from survival status to, yeah, I can do this, to actually finding um, a little bit of peace that started coming with it. And uh, by the time I left, I knew I was gonna come again. Uh, We would do interviews with uh, Marsha and also with Pat Hawk, who was uh, one of Marsh's teachers. And uh, I remember going to see Pat Hawk and uh, Pat was interested in what my my practice was. And I told him, well, I am an on again, off again sitter. And he said, well, just sit every day. He said, no matter what, just sit every day, but only do it for five minutes. Because the problem that we have is if we start thinking 45 minutes or every day, is life is going to get in the way of that, but you can always find five minutes. And so that's the advice I got from him. And I took his advice right away. And, um, uh, from that day on, I don't think I've missed any days of sitting. That's about 12, 13 years ago. And, uh, then I also remember reading this book called taking the path of Zen by Robert Aiken, because it was one that he suggested. And, um, uh, so the next year, I asked him to be my teacher, um, which he said yes. Um, and then Pat got uh, Pat got really sick, um, and uh, at that same time, or just before then, uh, Marcia he made Marsha a Zen teacher, and uh, so I asked Marsha if I if she would be my teacher because I knew Pat was not. Gonna have that capability anymore and she said yes and uh, so she was my zen teacher for a good 10 or 12 years and uh, the the thing that has been always true about zen is you can always find your uh, center by just sitting and you just do it every day and then if you want to do more, you do more. And if you don't want to do more, it's you always gravitate toward that period of time.
0: I remember, you know, I've, I've had the opportunity to do three retreats with you so far. And uh, I was not so consistent in my sit when I first came and I would bring you all kinds of questions. And um, it took me a, a, a little while, but it, I learned the answer would always include Sit every day, five minutes, sit every day. <laughs> and it was a very good behavioral training for me to hear that response over and over again. And I have finally learned, OK, I don't get to ask the other kind of uh, I don't get to the fun questions until I have that, um, yeah. that experience to draw from. And it, it there was a lot of learning in that for me to get to that consistency. And it always feels like a muscle to kind of hold steady in that.
1: Absolutely. Yeah.
0: Well, can I ask you a question? I've heard you tell this story a couple of times, Randy, and maybe even it made it into Marsha Linehan's book, Building a Life Worth Living. But I've heard it through the grapevine that when she would teach DBT, she would ask her groups of uh, participants, are you practicing DBT or mindfulness for psychological purposes or as a spiritual practice? And when you share that story of sitting, uh, you know, and facing a wall with your eyes open and having a panic attack and then remembering the breath, it's hard, it's hard for me to hear the difference. I wonder if there is one, if you're approaching it for a psychological, uh, from a lot of psychological perspective or a spiritual perspective, if the if the good medicine is the breath anyways, it's kind of like, are they, does it matter if you think of it one way or another? And you know, I'm curious what, what you've thought about those, all the responses that have come from those groups over time.
1: Yeah, so um, as far as the, the physiological uh, benefits from doing sitting, regularly sitting mindfulness uh they are just well documented these days it's it's truly amazing and i don't think it makes any difference uh whether you're sitting just to sit or you're sitting because you're on a spiritual path i don't think it makes any difference at all um and so i know marsh always had said it's like well you can practice just because this will make you Uh, both a better therapist, if you're a therapist, or a better spouse, or a better parent. Um, It'll give you a lot more patience in life, and uh, you'll end up suffering a whole lot less. And uh, all those sound really good.
0: That sounds great. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And uh, then on the other hand, it's that sometimes people feel like there's something missing in their life. And so, if you feel like there's something missing in your life, then the pursuit of Zen or other spiritual paths, and um, Zen is really not that much different than, say, Kabbalah, which is the Jewish uh, mysticism, or contemplative prayer, which is more the Christian mysticism, or Sufism, which is more the um, Muslim or Islam um, mysticism. It's I mean, they they all have pretty much the same thing in as its core, which is um, being able to sit and feel that uh, sense of oneness and connectedness with everything.
0: I know for myself, I had to think of it as exposure therapy to get started. The last thing I wanted to do was sit and be quiet, uh, especially for such long periods of time. and. And when I did expose myself to that experience, I, I learned a whole lot. There was a lot contained within that.
1: Yeah, so a, a lot of times when people pursue mindfulness, they, they do it with a um, kind of set goal in mind of, uh, you know, and again, Marsha put in her uh, second edition of the skills training manual, uh, decrease suffering, increase happiness. It's like, well, yeah, who would want that? Uh, but if you if you are doing it with the set intention of this will make me happier or this will help me suffer less, uh, you don't get the same results. And uh, Thich Nhat Hanh, who's a very, very wonderful writer, uh, Vietnamese Zen Buddhist monk, um, just has written and this I mean, he's a poet, he's a writer, he's a teacher. Uh, He has said, well, there's there's two ways to wash the dishes. One is to have clean dishes and the other is just to wash the dishes. And it's the same thing with mindfulness. The ultimate goal of mindfulness or mindful practice is mindful practice. There doesn't have to be anything more than that. And everything else that happens is just sort of beneficial side effects.
0: Mm. I like that. Anyway, you cut it. Well, here I have in my hands. You can see it around you, but no one else can. It's one of, just one of the DBT manuals and chock yeah. skills. It's like the size of an old school uh, phone book. And I've heard you say that everything in DBT can be traced back to Zen. Could you give some examples? Well, of, if I, is if, that right? Did I hear if, that correctly? If or? I said
1: everything, then I either said it wrong or. Uh, I,
0: I haven't found an exception to that rule yet. I think I think you could make a good argument, okay. for you know, val- exploring values and um, the transactional nature of change when you look at systems. I don't know. It, I think I think you could make a good case for it. But could you give some examples of where you see Zen embedded right within the the skills?
1: All right. Well, uh, I mean, the, the most obvious place, of course, is the core mindfulness skills um, and um really what core mindfulness skills are, the what and the how skills are really just a translation of how it is that you uh, practice uh, Zen meditation or mindful meditation. Because mindful meditation or mindfulness always starts with observe. Mm-hmm. And then uh, describing is usually you describe your experiences to the Zen teacher. And in this case, of course, you're just describing what it is that you first observe. And then after a while, it just rises that level of participation, but it's so important to practice non-judgmentally and sort of without the attachment. Um, One mindfulness of course, is that you're just doing one thing at a time. Uh, And uh, and, in Zen we talk about, well, if you're walking, just walk. If you're eating, just eat. Uh, Most people, when they're walking, they're already either at the place Um, in their mind where the path ends, or they've uh, at the beginning. So they're either carrying along with them um, things that uh, they've just encountered, or they're anticipating something else. And uh, when you're walking, the idea is just to walk. That's the only thing that uh, is important. So you're either walking to get somewhere or you're walking just to walk. Uh, When you're eating, same thing. It's not that you're reading at the same time or listening to the radio or watching TV or any of those things. It is that you're just eating. And that's kind of the essence of one mindfulness. Well, it turns out that if you can practice one mindfulness, then your level of distress goes way down because you're not thinking of the past, which tends to get us ruminating, uh, and you're not thinking about the future, which tends to make us really anxious. It's just this moment is the only thing that really truly exists. And then the skill of effectiveness, which Marcia says, of course, don't cut off your nose to spite your face, Which I guess is a less common expression than uh, I had thought. I thought every
0: translate cross culturally. Yeah, I thought everybody knew that,
1: but it's like (laughs) evidently not. Um, But it's it's like playing by the rules, figuring out how to get what it is that you want or need. Uh, Where it actually comes from, though, is that uh, people that practice Zen regularly. Uh, or other types of meditation, might have what we call an enlightenment experience. It's also known as Satori uh, or Kensho. And it is this incredible, powerful experience of of oneness and exceeding joy. And it is a place that once you experience, you wanna stay there the rest of your life. It's like nothing else compares to this. And then sooner or later though, somebody's got to go buy groceries. Somebody's got to clean the house. Somebody's Mm -hmm. got to go earn some money, right? Mm -hmm. And so that's the skill of effectiveness. It's Mm -hmm. doing what you need to do. And the old Zen expression around that is before uh, enlightenment, I chopped wood and carried water. After enlightenment, chopped wood and carried water. Mm Now, wise mind, this is really interesting, because wise mind, most people translate it as, oh, yeah, you take a little bit of emotion mind and you combine it with a little bit of reasonable mind, and you smush them together. And, and sort of where they overlap, that's wise mind. And uh, you know, that's that most famous Venn diagram. Anyway.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: But when you talk with Marcia about uh, wise mind and wisdom, um, she really thinks that those moments of wise mind are those moments of enlightenment that you clearly see the world as it is and uh again when people experience sort of that uh wise mind sensation it is that sense of really peace it's like of course this is it Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and uh So she was kind of struggling, I think, and how to get uh, behavior therapists to uh, be able to explain it. And that's the whole emotion mind, reasonable mind. But it never started out as three states of mind. It started out as wisdom and actually tapping the wisdom of the entire universe.
0: It's a little more approachable than here. I'm going to show you how to get to enlightenment.
1: Yeah. And from a from a science perspective, uh, there's like being mind and doing mind. Uh-huh. And so uh, being mind is where everything is fresh. Every moment it is real. It is the only thing that exists at that time. And doing mind is, is more or less like the library. So being mind experiences something, it shifts over to doing mind and the doing mind says, oh, it's this. This is what we have to do in response to that. Mm-hmm. Now you need them both, right? Because mm-hmm. you you couldn't experience your entire uh, life with everything being absolutely fresh. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, if you don't ex- uh, can't experience things as being fresh, it's just the library, and the library never actually learns and gets any new information. Um, and so it's, it's really needing both of those sides. And that's kind of where wisdom comes from.
0: Well, and that goes back to the core dialectic, doesn't it, of change and acceptance. And I, I hear in your description, you're addressing one of the common misconceptions about mindfulness is that it's passive and that it means that you're not going to do anything about the problems in the world. If you pay enough attention, you can't help but be upset or go yeah. do something about it. But a lot of times people think it means... Kind of rolling over or giving up?
1: Yeah, so w- where Zen and behavior therapy overlap absolutely perfectly is uh, Zen talks a lot about karma. And karma gets misunderstood as good karma or bad karma. And uh, really, karma is just cause and effect. And behavior therapy is all built on cause and effect. And so there's, there's this wonderful overlap between the two um, with exposure therapy or exposure or opposite action, the skill of opposite action. That is an incredibly mindful thing to do. Uh, and uh, really, it comes from the, the thought, uh, not the thought, the, the teaching that suffering exists. And everybody looks at that and say, well, yeah, no kidding, suffering exists. Uh, But the next part of that is that avoidance of suffering leads to worse suffering. And that makes so much sense when you start thinking about opposite action. Why would you do this? It's because if you avoid suffering, you end up then with a life that is less satisfying, less worthwhile living, and you, you invest all of your time into avoidance. And then your therapist, if you're seeing a therapist, uh, spends all of their time saying, stop doing that behavior. But nobody then solves the problem of what's mm-hmm. causing suffering in the first place.
0: There's something that made the status quo what it is. And so otherwise, yeah. you're just going to repeat the same loop unless you change... A variable.
1: Yep. And validation. I mean, that just comes straight from um, sort of the middle path perspective of, uh, you know, they they talk about the golden rule of uh, do unto others as you would have them do unto yourself. But in Zen, there are no others. And so whatever it is that you end up doing is you're doing it just to yourself. And once once you understand that, it becomes so much easier to have decent interpersonal relationships with people. Uh, And then the whole set of reality acceptance skills. Um, You know, there's the distress tolerance skills, of course. Um, And again, one of the key things is just this moment. The only thing that you have to tolerate is just this moment. You don't have to tolerate anything else, just this moment. Um, but all of the reality acceptance skills, Marsha got those straight from Thich Nhat And he talked about sort of the capability of being present. So mindfulness while observing your breath, mindfulness while singing, mindfulness while taking a shower or a bath, uh, and then radical acceptance is something that comes straight from Zen. And, uh, I mean, it, it is the ultimate in non-attachment.
0: I was going to ask, could you give our listeners your you know, 101 on radical acceptance? I think that's a very tough concept for a lot of people to, to get what it is, what it isn't, what it feels like.
1: Yeah, so um, most of the time people think in terms of uh, acceptance, um, well, one thing people don't actually wanna accept a number of things. And then there's the whole avoidance and leading to worse suffering. Mm -hmm. Uh, But a lot of times people think of acceptance as much more of this cognitive process. And uh, in fact, uh, when I worked with a number of the uh, clients when I was doing individual therapy pretty regularly or teaching skills, people said, I don't like the word acceptance because that somehow means approval. I want to change it to radical acknowledgement
0: Mm. it's like
1: oh yeah it did happen
0: Uh
1: um the problem with acknowledgement is that it even contains the word no in there which means then you're thinking much more of this cognitive process it's like you can know something and still not experience it and radical acceptance is experiencing that level of acceptance from from deep within it's it's like, yes, this in fact is what is. Now it's not at all passive though. It's, it's not at all uh, like fate, which is sort of the opposite of cause and effect where you lay down and say, oh yeah, why me? Uh, it is in fact, the first step, always the first step in being able to change something. You cannot change what you first haven't accepted. Since it's cause and effect, you can't change the outcome of what already is, but you can prevent future outcomes, the same if you change the causes. But the only way that you can change the causes is by accepting what is.
0: Otherwise it'd be like driving blindfolded or something like that. Yeah. You wouldn't know what you're doing.
1: So in... um, Zen, um, as well as other practices, they call it the practice of equanimity. And uh, so equanimity is non-attachment. And non-attachment is really different than detachment. Detachment says, well, I just don't give a flying rat's ass. Uh, Or it's like, Mm -hmm. this this is not something important. And non-attachment is that you can keep preferences. You can have a preference for something that it is that you want. You just let go of having to have it. And once you let go of having to have things, that's when you get that real sense of freedom. And uh, I remember Pat Hawk talking about that sort of sense of freedom because Marcia kept talking about joy. Wouldn't you, don't you want joy? And Pat would say, wouldn't you rather have freedom letting go of having to have something? And so, um, you know, this past week we've we've had an election, and I certainly have an absolute preference and desire for what I want the outcome to be. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, this has actually been a, a really good test for me of testing out my equanimity. Mm-hmm. It's because once I start getting attached to having to have a certain outcome. Mm. That my whole life and happiness is dependent on a certain outcome. If I have that, then I just suffer. Mm. I can keep my preference. God knows I've kept my preference. Mm. Um, But having to have something, that's where you suffer.
0: How do you do that in this moment in time when you do, you're surfing the urge to go back and have that attachment and even have biological things going on that kind of trigger that urge. Where do you put your focus? It's very hard to not do something.
1: Yeah, um, and it's, it's sort of like when you're sitting and uh, you tell yourself, well, I shouldn't have any thoughts. And of course, then you have thoughts. And uh, so if I try to tell myself I shouldn't be attached, then of course I remain attached it is in fact being able to observe that I am attached. And once I'm able to observe it, then it's easier to let it go. And so it is going back to really practicing the skill of observe.
0: Well, Randy, I know we're not gonna get through all of Zen in one conversation or all of DBT, but I'm wondering if you would be willing to share a practical example with listeners if they were trying to practice acceptance or uh, come back to this moment. Do you have an example of how someone might try that, whether it's for the very first time or coming back to their practice? Do you have a little five minute example that we could try together?
1: Yeah, I think, um, and it's it's all of Zen almost, not almost, all of Zen really starts this way, is the practice of actually just observing your breath. And uh, then once you can actually observe your breath successfully, then, then you move on to other types of exercises. Uh, so I've been sitting for a lot of years and uh, I still will start out every sit with observing my breath for a few minutes. And, and then I might be wrestling with say a koan or something else, uh, but I always start with counting my breaths. And so the practice itself of counting your breaths is very much, you just, as you breathe in, you just count one. And as you breathe out, you count two, and in three, and out four, in five, out six. As soon as you get to 10, you start over. If you get lost anywhere along the line, you just start over. You just go back to one. If you find yourself at 13 or 14, you just start over. If you have thoughts that come arise during this time, which they will, I mean, I'm practicing for all these years and I still have thoughts usually before I first get to even 10, Um, is just observe that you're having a thought and then bringing yourself back to one. Uh, In Zen, we practice with our eyes open. And um, Most meditation practices are actually done with your eyes closed. Um, Zen, we practice with our eyes open. And uh, as Marcia described it, it is the process of being fully awake right now. And the wonderful thing is that if you practice with any regularity, is you can drop into moments of mindfulness all throughout the day. Because Again, the practice of mindfulness is just coming back to just this moment, because this moment is the only thing that's actually real. And so we ask people to uh, get themselves in what we call a wide awake position. And uh, most people uh, start out in a chair, uh, although you can certainly sit on the floor. and, um, or you can sit what's called SESA or SESA position, which is on your knees, uh, but it doesn't matter. It's, it's whatever position you, you take is, you try to assume a position that you can comfortably hold without moving for the period of time that the exercise is for. So every time you move, it's, it's sort of like resetting everything. And so you want to just be able to sit and just notice, sit and just notice. And uh, you don't try to empty out your mind of thoughts. Um, You don't will yourself not to have thoughts because then you'll just get really tired and suffer needlessly. It's just, if you have thoughts, you have thoughts. Of course, you're gonna have thoughts. If emotions come up, which they do for a lot of people, that's fine as well. Just allow the emotions to come up. Um, Thich Nhat Hanh talks about inviting them in for tea, but don't let them stay for dinner. Um, so it is, it is just, again, sort of, I wonder where that came from. And then it's like, okay, mm-hmm. bye-bye. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, Get yourself in that kind of wide awake, comfortable position. Mm-hmm. Let me get my bell here.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And uh, this is this again is a, as a Zen tradition: is that uh, you ring the bell three times to start a practice and once to stop. Um, it's not absolutely required. Uh, however, I've, it's, it's really like classical conditioning working for you. As soon as you hear the bell, then your, your brain goes into that much more mindfulness spot if you've been practicing it regularly. But fortunately, um, uh, there's a number of apps that actually uh, are, are timing. Um, I don't like the apps that are much more the guided imagery That even tell you how fast to breathe or how slow to breathe. This is not trying to control your breath in any way. It's just observing it. So get yourself kind of situated in the chair here. All right. Uh, Find a place to uh, let your eyes sort of become semi-unfocused. Leave them open. And then uh, make sure both feet are on the floor and uncrossed. And then with your hands, uh, you can do a couple things. You can kind of just take your hands and and place them down on top of your thighs, um, or you can flip your hands over. So the palms are up on top of your thighs, which is actually, of course, a great DVT skill known as willing hands. Or you can take your left hand palm up and place it on top of your right hand palm up and touch your thumbs together. And this is known as the cosmic mudra, at least in Zen. It's also known by other names in, I think, yoga, Um, because let's face it, Zen stole a bunch of things from yoga. and That's all right. I think actually they were freely given, Um, but whatever way ends up that you feel like you can, again, hold that position for that five minutes. And of course you can blink. And of course, you can swallow. And if you have to move, um, then just notice the urge to move. Try to surf the urge for a little while. And if that doesn't work, then move very mindfully. Because most of the time when we uh, move, we do it very non-mindfully. It's like all of a sudden, you notice an itch. (laughs) Um, So if you have this excruciating itch, just practice mindfully scratching. Or if you were like Marcia, she basically just told us that pain is irrelevant. I said, that's easy for you to say, but it actually wasn't easy for her to say.
0: All
1: right, so I'm gonna ring the bell three times to start the practice and once to end. Again, it's just counting your breaths. Don't try to slow your breathing down or speed it up. It's just observing it. So if you want just the psychological benefits of mindfulness practice, just do that every day. Just find a time that works for you and and just sit and count your breaths every day. And if you want more of a pursuit of Zen, then probably pick up the book called taking the path of Zen and uh, continue to practice. And if that becomes something of interest, then look for a, look for a teacher.
0: Randy, I don't know if I've ever heard five minutes of silence on a podcast before, but I, I quite enjoyed it. And I actually uh, might have to adjust my settings. I never have liked the sound of my alarm going off at the end of five minutes. So I might just have to borrow your bell and your your guidance. I really appreciate that. Um, and thank you for the gift of your presence today. I appreciated hearing about your your background and giving such a lovely introduction to the practice of Zen and sharing your, your resources. Thank you for joining me today.
1: Absolutely.
0: Therapy for Real Life also offers workplace workshops to help your team buffer against the stresses of daily life. Therapy for Life is known for the Burnout Prevention Hackathon, which teaches your team self-care strategies that are backed by research to help you interrupt burnout and promote self-care. Now that work has moved primarily to virtual and work from home, Therapy for Real Life has adapted the Burnout Prevention Hackathon for the online community. Get in touch to discuss your interest in stress management, burnout prevention, relationship building, and other self-care workshops, and how to adapt these trainings for your team's needs.